First thing in the morning, swallow the toad. The phrase means do the jobs that you don't want to do first. In historical terms, whose job was it to swallow the toad first thing in the morning? Surely that is purely a job for witches, and witches don't tend to write business mantras, Tom, as far as I know. Well, maybe that's why there aren't many around at the moment, Sam. Well, maybe that's true. They weren't savvy enough. They were too busy (laughs) huddled around cauldrons thinking up silly ditties when they should have actually been on social media. Writing motivational ditties on Instagram. Absolutely. Yeah, and sharing them at networking events. (laughs) Eye of toad and finger of newt. First thing in the morning, for goals you must shoot. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, I'd like to introduce myself. My name's Geraldine the Witch. And today I'm raising the dead and making that bread. Who hears me, sisters? (laughs) (laughs) Three, Three, two, two, one. one. Da 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 da. It's. Hey! <laughs> that was genius! That was, that genius. was, the, that was the, uh, the, the horse's answer. I like, hey! Well saved, yes. <laughs> Phew, I think we styled that out. Convincingly done. Welcome to what Tom should have shouted, which is, that was genius. Okay, do you want to try again? No. Welcome to That Was Genius, the podcast in which Tom, who's the person who thinks that hey is the answer to what is it, and me, Sam, <laughs> the person who knows that the answer to what is it is That Was Genius. Welcome that was to genius. Our... <laughs> See, I wasn't, I wasn't, I did it that time. I wasn't you, like... You got it. So welcome to That Was Genius, the little podcast in which Tom, the person over there who keeps interrupting, uh, doesn't know what this podcast is called, <laughs> and me, Sam, who does discuss historical stories. Every week we have a theme, but everything else is a complete surprise. And what is this week's theme, Tom? Oh, well, you just told me off for interrupting. I'm not sure I should be contributing anymore. Fine. I might just have a huff. (laughs) I might just have a podcast huff. Well, whilst Tom has a strop in the corner... (laughs) (laughs) That's a rich audio strop, Tom. Well done. Uh, I will say that this week's podcast is all about historical events which should be films but aren't yet films, so something mad enough that someone should have made a film about it and hasn't yet. How have you found this week's, Tom? Excellent. I knew from the off what I was going to do, Sam. And in uh, <laughs> in keeping with our previous 16 podcasts, I've bent the rules quite a bit to do something <laughs> I wanted to do. <laughs> Excellent. So, yes. How did you find it? Well, like you, I knew exactly from the out what I was going to do. It's, which is something that I've been wanting to talk about since episode one of this podcast and haven't got around to yet. So I'm thrilled that on this major milestone of our 17th birthday 17th. week, we are 17 weeks old that I'm finally able to talk about it. It's lucky that I have because recently it was announced that it is going to be turned into a film. So if I'd left it much longer, I would have not been able to do it. But it's not a film yet. It's funny you mention that because part of what I'm going to be discussing is a film in production as well. Mm. Ah. Yes. Fascinating. Are you going to give me a titbit? Am I going to give you a titbit? My story today is set in World War Two, and it is the only time that the Axis and the Allies fought on the same side. During the Second World War? Indeed. Well, I never. Yes. That's a quiz question, isn't it? It is indeed. We're all going to learn something very useful here today. Now tickle me, Tom. Tickle me with your knowledge stick. <clears throat> uh, t- <laughs> tickle you with my knowledge stick. Tease me, Tom. First... Scottish War of Independence is what I'm going for, famous for a certain individual named William Wallace, and that's what I'm going to discuss. Well, thank God there's no films about William Wallace. 
that that anyone can think about. No, don't don't you worry, Sam. There's a there's a logic behind this. I'm kind of going <laughs> down the route of a period of history that should have been made into a good film. That's where I'm going with this. <laughs> But instead so, got made so, into a really shit film. So your bending of the rules is simply that this is a major Hollywood blockbuster film, but I didn't like it much. <laughs> Anyone who likes it has got really poor judgment. It's an awful film. But no, it's not just... No, no, That's there's a, a politician's answer, isn't it? <laughs> there's, there's, a lot, there's a lot more to the first war of Scottish independence than William Wallace. There's a lot more to it. And I just think that Mel Gibson, he chose the wrong thing to make a film about. He basically made a wrong decision when he decided to produce and direct it, to be quite frank. <laughs> uh, he should have left both of those roles to someone else. But there we go. Right, well, should we flip something? Because I'm really excited to hear your story, Tom. I think it's something I've not heard about before, Braveheart, and I'm really thrilled to learn more. I'm only going to criticise Braveheart for about 30 minutes worth of my part, Okay, (laughs) I'm not going to spend too long on it. Have you a 30-minute segment of this podcast? You're only going to spend 30 minutes slagging off Braveheart? No, no, well, actually, no, 25 minutes, and five minutes will be dedicated solely to Mel Gibson. Right, okay. (laughs) Right, shall I flip something then? Go on, flip it. Right, so today, Tom, I'm going to flip a beer mat. But this beer mat is dedicated to the Pint of Science Festival, a science communication festival that happens worldwide every year. And the reason I'm selling it quite so hard is because I produce their podcast, Tom. And <laughs> pluggity, pluggity, plug, plug, plug. I know, I know. What a tactless plug that was, Sam. Embarrassing to listen to. <laughs> I know. Look at me whoring myself for clicks. I can visualise you now bending over backwards for your keyboard and rubbing a mouse up against your gooch <laughs> right i can literally hear you dribbling into your microphone right. <laughs> well, that's the gherkins that's the gherkins i'm snacking on <laughs> shall i flip this beer mat before i'm sick in my flip. mouth a bit <laughs> <laughs> yes please it's flipped would you like the side that says pint of science on it or the side that has the dates I will have the dates, please. Ah, I win. And you, Tom, are going to go first. Let's get this out of the way with what's wrong with Braveheart? Okay, well, I'm joking. I'm only going to spend a very small amount of time on why I don't like Braveheart. But it's worth talking about Braveheart just to (laughs) contextualise the First War of Scottish Independence. So, as I've mentioned, I think that the First War of Scottish Independence is fascinating. It's a really, really fun period of British, English, Scottish history with some excellent characters. It's a really cool bit of history. And it's very, very complicated, very nuanced. The characters involved are very complicated characters. And there's a lot of... And I think Mel Gibson did an excellent job of portraying that in his yes. Hollywood blockbuster Braveheart. Don't you, Tom? You can see where I'm going, can't you? You can see <laughs> what I'm leading on to with this. Unfortunately, the film Braveheart is just an incredibly one-dimensional film that focuses on the exploits of uh, of William Wallace, who, as I'll go on to explain, isn't really a very big player in the First War of Scottish Independence. And he's a, very, he's a pretty mediocre commander as well. An interesting character nonetheless, but he's completely overplayed by Mel Gibson. And the whole film itself has an incredible reputation for being historically inaccurate. And that's not just me, that's widely perceived. I mean, for a start, I'm not sure William Wallace was Australian. No, 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 no. <laughs> well, you know, on, on a very superficial level, I read somewhere the clothes that Mel Gibson wears in the film are the equivalent 
to an 18th century British soldier wearing a 20th century business suit back to front. <laughs> it's, it's just all those subtle details are so bad. And if you're going to make a historical epic, all those fine details really make the difference, don't you think? Like, apparently films like Zulu with Michael Caine in, all those little details are really accurate. And then if you're going to make a film that's actually supposed to be like a comic book history, like Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves with Kevin Costner, yeah, have some fun, fuck around, you know, go yeah, to town. That's yeah. a great film. But it's tongue-in-cheek, isn't it? It's a great film, it's tongue-in-cheek. But if you're going to try and make a historical epic, Matt, you've got you to gotta do it well. Interestingly, and I did a bit of research on this, Mel Gibson has directed and produced three films. So where he's actually done both the directing and the producing. I've watched all three of them, and all three of them are awful. Braveheart, The Passion of Christ, and Apocalypto. Have you watched any of those three? I haven't watched The Passion of Christ, but I've seen the other two. Uh, I mean, what do you think about them? Do you know what? I don't treat Braveheart as a historical epic, because it's a Mel Gibson film. I see Braveheart as as a historical romp. It's just like <laughs> monotonous in every sense of the word. Anyway. But yes, but, but Mel Gibson has the emotional complexity of an Australian alcoholic. I'm not saying he's an alcoholic, but he is Australian. <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, it, it's true. I mean, at least he's outgrown his mullet from Lethal Weapon, because there are a lot of New Zealanders and Aussies that are still, are still wearing that wonderful bogan mullet. So there it is. The Braveheart, I don't think, is a very good film, and it certainly isn't historically accurate. And I think it um, doesn't do justice to a really interesting period in history. So there's apparently a sequel to Braveheart that's being produced at the moment that is going to focus on more the <laughs> Battle of Bannockburn, oh. which I'm going to discuss, which is a really significant Scottish victory over the English. Is it called Braverheart? More Braver. Bra- <laughs> Bra- <laughs> Scottish Boogaloo. <laughs> Braveheart 2. This time it's personal. Hungarier, Drawneria, more (laughs) Cortady. Yes, and I'm going to go on to explain that he did get hung, drawn and quartered. Yes, we were criticising the Drevlians, no, not the Drevlians, the the Rus with their punishments, their incredibly innovative ways of killing people. Hung, drawn and quartering, that's really quite repulsive when you think about it, isn't it? It sends a message. It really does send a message. William Wallace, in fact, when he was hung, drawn and quartered, I think he had all of his limbs then taken and given to different castles in the north of England, I think. So, you know, you'd have an arm of his... Yeah, that's what being quartered was. Uh, you would be... Oh, that was the quarter, was it? The quartering wasn't just the dismembering of the body. It was it was integrally sending it to different parts of the kingdom as a, as a geographical sign that the power of the king was everywhere. There you go. I think Robert the Bruce had three of his brothers hung, drawn and quartered as well when Robert the Bruce became the major enemy of the English, which again I'm going to go on to explain. Where was it? Oh, yeah, that's films. I was talking about films. Another film as well that I'd never heard of before, 1996, a film called Robert the Bruce. I think it might be called The Bruce. But importantly, Sam, have a guess who plays Edward I. If you could choose any English actor that you would like to play Edward Longshanks, Hammer of the Scots, who would you choose? Ooh. Oh, no, who am I? Th- I I'm terrible with actors' names. Ah, oh, fuck, I can't remember. Tell me, Tom, tell me who it is. Gordon's alive, Sam. <laughs> Gordon's alive. Oh, fuck yes. I'm going to have to watch this now. 
I know. It's Brian Blessed. There's no Brian one Blessed in plays Edward this the first. world that I love more than Brian Blessed. He is my favourite person alive by a country mile. I know. And he plays Edward the first. Fantastic. For those of you who don't know, so this is probably uh, people who aren't British, w- probably where you'd most easily uh, recognise Brian Blessed is from the cult late 70s classic film Flash. <laughs> in which he plays um oh he plays the king of the the bird people or something and he's just a big oh he's a big bearded roly poly man with a huge booming voice he's very dandy absolutely and incredibly balmy unbelievably cheerful and happy swears like a trooper uh, actually, bizarrely, a very accomplished mountaineer. <laughs> He's climbed Everest yes, before. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, yeah. A very strange individual, but incredibly. But he amusing. just screams. He shouts at the top of his voice all the time and has just the most bizarre <laughs> sense of humour. And he's wonderful and I love him. And I, I always love the image of him at the top of Everest going, We have to be very, very quiet in case of avalanches. <laughs> <laughs> Shush, Brian. Quiet, quiet, Brian. I'm being very quiet. <laughs> a fantastic character. So there, that that is reason enough to watch this film. It's got Brian Blessed playing Edward I. Anyway, right, let's get down to business, Sam. First Scottish War of Independence ran from 1296 to 1328. And it's worth saying straight away, the name, the Scottish War of Independence, is a later name. And it's actually a name that was given to this uh, period of history after the American Wars of Independence. And what that name does, the Scottish Wars of Independence, is it kind of leads you to believe that the relationship between the English and the Scots in this period was very us versus them. And it's very important if you want to understand the complexity of this period of history to know that actually you can't put onto it your modern conceptions of statehood because there is a lot more fluidity between the Scots and the English in this period. There's a lot, a lot of grey in the north of England and the, and the south and particularly the west of Scotland. <laughs> there is indeed a lot of grey in large parts of Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, a lot of grey. Both politically a lot of gray. and climactically. <laughs> so a lot of the nobles that are involved in these wars, their allegiances, their loyalties, their national identities themselves are very, very fluid. I'll go on to explain this in a bit more detail. I, I don't want to introduce you to any of the major characters just yet because I'll just confuse people. Anyway, it all starts in 1296 when King Alexander III of Scotland falls off a cliff, having taken a wrong turning on his horse en route for a bit of hanky-panky, Sam. <laughs> Say that again, because I definitely didn't see this bit in Braveheart. <laughs> no, absolutely. The heroic this start is... of the Scottish War of Independence was as a result of a horny king riding his horse off a cliff. Desperate for a shag. Desperate for a shag. I'm not sure which part of that was the horse and which part was the king. Have you ever seen a randy horse, Sam? Yes, I grew up around horses. Yes. Mm-hmm. Have you ever had to toss off a horse? I haven't had to. <laughs> Isn't there a surname in Germany that translates as pig tosser? Um, that's one for Dr. Google. Yeah, it'll be something like Schweinbanker. <laughs> <laughs> Hans, Hans Schweinbanker. <laughs> we need you here immediately. This pig is very, very horny. <laughs> so yeah, so King Alexander III of Scotland falls off a cliff. As I'm sure all of our listeners have learnt now after 16 episodes of this podcast, if you are a king of somewhere, don't die without an heir. Well, to be fair, it sounded like he was trying to make one. 
Oh yeah, I suppose <laughs> he was. He was, he was on his way his to trying to provide one. He did have a granddaughter who was the rightful heir, and this was Margaret of Norway. She dies shortly after King Alexander III of Scotland dies, and so there is no one. So we get a, a period where there's a lot of claimants to the throne of Scotland. There is obviously definitely a sense of Scotland at this point in history, which is clear because there's a king of Scotland, but the Scottish are far from unified. So there are two particularly strong rival families, and those are the Commons and the Bruces. So in this period, Scotland could easily fall into a period of civil war. And essentially what happens is they kind of do fall into a period of civil war, but it's got the English getting involved as well. There's a lot of fluid fighting going on in this 30, 40 years. Edward I of England, Edward Longshanks, who is famously a very successful English king and one who had very loyal followers, unlike his son Edward II, who was fairly useless. Edward I of England is asked to arbitrate and help the Scots choose a leader in what becomes known as the Great Cause. Edward I himself actually had a reputation as being an international arbiter on the European continent. Again, didn't get that in Braveheart, did you? He just came across as a bastard in Braveheart. One of the reasons... I dislike Braveheart isn't the fact that it's very we hate the English. I don't mind we hate the English. I I really don't mind. It's just when it's so one-dimensional that it becomes a little bit irritating. I imagine it's similar to what it's like to be a Muslim watching 24 after (laughs) 9-11. I think it probably gets a little bit grating. So Edward I is called in. With his oversight, a chap called John Balliol is made King of Scotland. But Edward is a great opportunist. So Edward is seeing an opportunity here to gain more power in Scotland and basically make the Scottish nobles, uh, what would be the word? Um, vassals, to make them vassals. Yeah, that's right. That's Vassals for Vassalise them. Vassalise. Mm. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I want, to. I want anyone to be vassalised. <laughs> yes, being doused in Vaseline didn't work out so well for Alexander and his horse, did it? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's what I was thinking about, dousing someone in Vaseline. Yeah, in fact, that's not too far away from how uh, Edward II was killed, is it? Um, there was lots of Vaseline involved there <laughs> and a hot poker. Incidentally, do you know that, you know that story, don't you, Sam? Maybe we should enlighten our uh, listeners. Perhaps you should um, fill in the listeners. <laughs> <laughs> so um, Edward II, who is Edward I's son and heir, becomes king and is a fairly useless king. He just doesn't seem to be able to get the support of all the nobles. He's not a very charismatic king. And in all likelihood, he was homosexual. Um, and there is a rumour that he is killed in the end by people who just get pissed off with him being a pre naff monarch by having a hot poker shoved up his ass, That's the rumour. It's probably not true, but it's certainly a rumour that was spread at the time. So Edward I sees an opportunity to gain more control over Scotland and starts applying a lot of pressure to this John Balliol chap. And eventually in 1296, he actually invades Scotland, defeats the Scots at the Battle of Dunbar and demands that all the Scottish nobles pay homage to him. In the aftermath of this, we get the famous figure of William Wallace, along with a few other people, like a chap called Andrew Moray. So basically, the nobles of Scotland aren't used to being in this sort of feudal relationship where they're expected to do a lot. And Edward I is expecting them to pay homage, and he's expecting them to come and fight with him in France and do all sorts of other things. And the Scottish nobles have kind of been used to uh, being more loosely controlled and being allowed to do a little bit more what they want there's also a sense of scotland it's you know you can debate how good that sense is but there's definitely a sense of scotland and so we get people like william wallace and andrew moray who are more petty not petty that's not the right word who are lower ranking nobles yeah more lower ranking nobles they start to gain some followers and rebel against the english nobles that are starting to tax them and starting to make themselves felt in the towns of scotland 
So we've got these two figures. We've got Andrew Moray and William Wallace. Andrew uh, Moray escapes capture at the Battle of Dunbar and he begins to fight a guerrilla war against the English around the area of Moray in Scotland. And Wallace begins another revolt in Lanark and rapidly becomes the leader of a a sort of band of, of Scots. We get the Battle of Stirling Bridge in 1297. Now, this is a battle where a force under the joint command of Wallace and Moray, and that's quite important because you don't really get that in Braveheart. It's all about William Wallace. Face off against an English army sent north um, to sort out the rebelling Scots, not led by Edward I, incidentally. He put someone else in charge. And this was a very tactical and significant victory for the Scots. So the English heavy cavalry and infantry get stuck on the bridge at Stirling, and the surrounding land is very, very boggy. And so the Scottish shiltrons, which are best described really as a circular phalanx, so the Scottish had a, like a tight hedgehog-like shape with lots of long wooden spears, which is generally quite a defensive form of warfare. The Scottish shiltrons basically just rip apart the English who get stuck in all this boggy ground. So it's a very significant victory. Unfortunately, Moray is killed, unfortunately for him. And so Wallace is made guardian of Scotland and immediately lays waste to Northumberland, driving refugees all the way back to Newcastle and they all go behind the walls of the castle in Newcastle. However, that's pretty much the height of William Wallace's military campaign here. So that's 1297. His military reputation is totally ruined only a year later when Edward I actually personally decides to um, take control of the situation and he uh, marches north and defeats Wallace roundly at the Battle of Falkirk. Wallace survives this but his reputation is in shatters and he gives up his guardianship and he becomes a diplomat to France for the rest of the war, for the rest of his war because as we've discussed he comes to a rather unpleasant end um, when the British use him as a bit of a um, a warning to other yes. Scots against rebelling. So he gets hung, drawn and quartered. So he basically gets forcibly retired in sort of shame. Yeah. Poor William. I thought he fought like a poet. Actually, maybe he did fight like a poet. Maybe he didn't fight like a soldier and that was the issue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was, too, he was too busy thinking up rhymes. What rhymes with Shiltron? Fuck. Um, <laughs> Megatron. Oh, no, that hasn't been invented yet. 200 years short. Oh, you're not even doing a Scottish accent when you're thinking William Wallace, are you? Sort it out, Tom. Oh, what was I doing? Uh, okay, so I try that again. Okay, I can't rhyme anything with Chiltron. The only thing I can rhyme as a Scotsman is good with food, which is a slogan for a supermarket that literally only works if you're Scottish. Good and food. Good and food. <laughs> which, slo- which slogan is that? It's for the cooperative, Tom. Oh, you're quite a good Scottish accent there, Sam. You've been practising it. Uh, no, I haven't. I'm just I'm very good at accents, Tom, as you'll know if you've listened to this podcast for any length of time. Not a bad Scottish accent at all, Sam. Well, you've not. Well, it is a terrible Scottish accent. If you ever show a Scottish person, they would cry into their porridge. <laughs> can you do a more shabby Glaswegian accent? You can. You doing, laddie? That's just slightly more angry than you say. Wait! I just string a sentence together. <laughs> What's, what's the really strong Scottish accent called? It's got a name, hasn't it? Oh, I, forgot, I forgot what it's called. It's really, it's really aggressive and it's, it barely, it's very, very, very difficult to understand. <laughs> anyway, anyway, anyway. I'm now going to fast forward a bit because I wanted to speak about William Wallace. So this is 1297, 1298. William Wallace is actually a significant figure. He wins one battle and he loses another battle and he disappears. Okay, so now what I'd like to do is compare William Wallace with Robert the Bruce, who I think is a much more interesting figure and certainly a much more successful Scottish leader. Robert the Bruce is the man that turned the tides 
on the English. He is the chap that led the Scots, unified the Scots in a very brutal way, incidentally, and started to turn the tides on the English. So he is a very significant historical figure and certainly someone worthy of Mel Gibson. So, (laughs) (laughs) interestingly as well, Robert the Bruce, Robert the Bruce actually fought for Edward I early on in the First Scottish War of Independence. Interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of turncoating. There's a lot of political manoeuvring and turncoating, and that's because of the number of rivalries in Scottish politics at this time. So the Scots would side with the English when they didn't like who was becoming a leading figure in in the Scottish movement. And then when they felt like there was an opportunity, which is what would happen with Robert the Bruce, to sort of try and grab some power in Scotland, they turn coat and they go and become independent and rebel against Edward I. There's a lot of turncoating. William Wallace himself, it has been postulated, had fought for Edward I as a young man in Wales. And that's possibly where he gained his military experience that he used at the Battle of Stirling Bridge. So literally everyone's just fighting anyone. Well, absolutely. And if you think... How un-Scottish. <laughs> absolutely. And when you think about the ethnicity, I suppose, of these nobles at the time, they're basically... They're Anglo-Norman, and they've got some Celtic and Gaelic in them as well. And I don't know the ins and outs of this, but from what I understand, the more um, northeast you go in Scotland, the more kind of Gaelic it is. Mm. And the more south and east you go, the more of a grey area it is. And there's a lot of... I mean, a lot of these people have French names. A lot of these Scottish nobles have Norman surnames. And actually, the Scottish people originally came from Iraq, would you believe? Did they really? Yeah. How did that happen? I don't really know. In fact, no one's really sure, but the bagpipes were originally an Iraqi instrument. Were they really? So there you go. I don't think we can leave that hanging. We need to extra- We need to expand on that before next week because we don't want people going around saying Scottish people are from Iraq. There's got to be some context in this. I'd like to find out more. <laughs> I will do some research between this week and next. It's something I vaguely remember from my university degree but couldn't possibly tell you more about now. Fair enough. All right, I'll look forward to that. Sounds very interesting. So let's talk about Robert the Bruce. So Robert the Bruce gets crowned King of Scotland in 1306. And I know I've jumped quite a bit from the Battle of Falkirk in 1298 to 1306. And that's because there's a lot to talk about. This is a really complex period of history. Um, He begins his mission to become a strong leader of an independent Scotland in 1306. Early on, he's defeated at the Battle of Methven. And he's actually driven from the Scottish mainland. And we're not quite sure where he goes. There's a possibility the Outer Hebrides. There's a possibility he goes to Ireland, maybe even Norway. But he's driven from Scotland. And he becomes an outlaw. Most of his immediate family are captured by the English after this defeat, and three of his brothers, as I alluded to earlier, get hung, drawn and quartered. And a lot of his family are captured, taken to London, and he eventually gets them back when he has a bit more success in battle. In 1307, he begins to rebuild his support rapidly, waging a guerrilla war not only against the English, but actually slowly destroying all his rivals in Scotland as well. So a lot of pillaging and burning land and being a generally unpleasant person to to all his Scottish (laughs) rivals. And this again, it just highlights how complex this situation here. It isn't just English versus Scots. How much everyone likes yeah, a fight. Yeah, it's just a, absolutely, it's a free-for-all. It really is very, very, very Game of Thrones. His progress is helped at this point because Edward I dies and Edward II becomes King of England, as we've discussed, who is quite weak. And in 1314, we get the famous Battle of Bannockburn. I am really going through this quite quickly, Sam. This is You are, you're flying you, through. There's so much that you can read up about. It's really, really interesting. You are literally, you're doing a flying Scotsman, Tom. You are zipping along. I am doing a flying Scotsman very well. That was good. I like that. Flying Scotsman. Who designed the flying Scotsman, Sam? Stevenson? No, the flying Scotsman was Sir Nigel Gresley. And you, you, you didn't just Wikipedia that? As I probably told you off air before, I do have a train set in my loft. <laughs> and have you got a flying Scotsman up in your loft? I don't have a flying Scotsman, no. What's your best train? <laughs> 
I'm not going to answer that question. I don't want to let all the other trains down. <laughs> they might <Thomas>. be listening. <laughs> Excellent. Is it very lifelike? So you do all the modelling, or have you got like a, a, a tunnel that is just a big paper mache asshole that <laughs> 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 the train goes in? <laughs> I it's it's more traditional, I would say. <laughs> I've steered clear of Mount Anus. <laughs> Mount Anus. We should open up Sam. We should open up one of those miniature villages. I think I could do a great I'm, job. I'm not entirely sure we should. <laughs> oh, excellent. Massive fat man with his legs spread. Oh, Tom. <laughs> battle of Bannockburn. So in 1314, we get the famous Battle of Bannockburn. And this is where a very, very disorganised English army led by Edward II get beaten by a surprisingly offensive, and by offensive I mean not defensive, <laughs> not, not, just, not just surprisingly rude. <laughs> hey, wankers! Deep hey, fry oh. this, you dick! <laughs> yeah. uh, so a surprisingly offensive Scottish army. So the Scottish are generally taking the approach against the English during this period of being very defensive, retreating, basically fighting a guerrilla war, the very few pitched battles. And the English were given an absolute routing by a much smaller Scottish force. It's a massive victory by medieval standards in general because the Scots capture heaps and heaps of English nobles. And obviously that's then a massive source of income because they can ransom them. After this, as you would expect, Robert the Bruce becomes exceptionally powerful. It is a massive boost. Um, he eventually becomes recognised widely as the official leader of Scotland, so there's sort of no more controversy around this. Incidentally, he was actually excommunicated, Robert the Bruce, before he becomes crowned King of Scotland in 1306, because he kills one of his major rivals in a church, uh, John Comyn, who obviously was heading up the other major rival family in Scottish politics. And in 1328, Edward II, with the Treaty of Edinburgh-Northampton, basically says he's got to leave the Scots alone. He, he can't actually deal with them. Bruce then dies a year later in 1329, having been a very, very successful military, military commander for 20 years, as opposed to Wallace, who is an average military commander for two. That's a long career, isn't it? He was an incredibly successful king and incredibly ruthless as well. Very, very, very ruthless. Certainly not a nice chap, but he certainly ended up unifying Scotland through, I guess, charisma and fear. I don't think there's much place for nice people in medieval politics. No, there isn't. Definitely not. I think particularly when you're looking at England in the kind of the 13th century, early 14th century, nice guys, they do finish last. I mean, to be fair, it's not particularly nice if you're an arsehole either. Life generally is a bit unpleasant, isn't it? Yeah, so you, I suppose you, must, you may as well translate that. That was me speaking Scottish. <laughs> a generally unpleasant time. We, and that's been a recurring theme, hasn't it, in this podcast when we're discussing the Middle Ages. Brutal, brutal period. A lot of warfare, a lot of backstabbing, lots of self-interest. There you go. That is the first war of Scottish independence done incredibly quickly for what is actually a very complicated period of history. Oh, that uh, is interesting. I'd like to end on the note saying that, yeah, Braveheart's shit. <laughs> Well, maybe it's time, Tom, that someone, and by someone, I mean not us, made a better film about that war and some of the more political backstabbings and the kind of intrigue around it. I think it's time. Absolutely. It could be an excellent film. With Game of Thrones, a bit more backstabbing mixed in with the violence is probably quite de rigueur now. I think that'd be quite popular. I do like films where the character development is complex. Not every character is good or bad. They're subtly different. Everyone has their positive and their negative sides. And that's what you could do with this film. It doesn't have to be 
so one-dimensional, simplified, which Braveheart is. English are wankers. Scottish are fantastic. William Wallace is a legend. I want to see Robert the Bruce as both a fantastic military leader and a tender lover and caring baker. Does William Wallace do that in Braveheart? Does he bake? No, I was just, I'm just making it up. I just want to see character oh, development. Right. <laughs> Fair enough. Good. Uh, uh, yes, absolutely. We want Robert the Bruce to be um, good with flanges. Flanges? Uh, did you mean flans? No, I think there is a type of pastry called a flange. I thought you were combining the baker and tender lover thing to make him very good with flanges. List list of custard desserts. No, that's coming up with a flange. I'm sure there is such a thing as a flange. I'm not sure there is. I think that's just a euphemism for vagina. (laughs) I know, but I I think it doubles up as a euphemism. Anyway, whilst Tom is desperately trying... To make himself look less stupid. To make himself look less stupid. I'm going to talk about my story for today, if you don't mind. What's your story from today? My story today, Tom, is the Battle of Itterschloss, or Itter Castle. Itterschloss. Itterschloss, which was one of the final, if not the last, battles of the war in Europe in World War II. It occurred on the 5th of May 1945, which is a week after Hitler killed himself in his bunker in Berlin. And it's definitely if not the last the strangest battle of the war in Europe because it is the only time that the Germans and the US fought side by side as allies and it's also probably the only time that a French tennis star a couple of retired prime ministers and Charles de Gaulle's sister joined in the fight as well right (laughs) it's my favorite story from World War II it's one I wanted to talk about for ages and it's not a film and I can't believe it hasn't been done yet but it is being made by Studio Canal and I'm so excited to see it when it comes out whenever that is. So, to set the scene of this quite frankly bizarre battle, in 1943, the SS, the Schutzstaffel, Hitler's personal bodyguard and the kind of the most feared German soldiers in World War II, who ran all of the prison camps, requisitioned the beautiful castle at Itter in Austria in order to turn it into a prison camp for high-profile but troublesome Frenchmen, which, as we all know, Tom, is the best kind of Frenchman. (laughs) So these were people who were a thorn in Germany's side but couldn't really be gotten rid of without causing a stir. So they were just kind of shuffled away into comfortable, inverted commas, prison. But it was really quite a nice sort of semi-retirement for them. I was about to say, sounds quite good. Lots of slightly awkward people, irritating people. Yes. Nuisances in one room together. Well, as we'll come on to, Tom, it wasn't all roses. (laughs) Among the prisoners were former Prime Ministers Edouard de Ladier and Paul Renard, a trade union leader, a guy called Leon Juhot. I bet they got on well. Well, well, this is the thing. Uh, French generals Maxime Weygand and Maurice Gamelin, tennis star John Barotre, and right-wing French leader Colonel Francois de la Roque, as well as Michael Clemenceau, politician and son of World War I-era Prime Minister Georges Clemenceau, and Charles de Gaulle's older sister Marie-Agne Calou. Sounds like an excellent fantasy football team. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> and, and these people hated each other. The Germans didn't really need to do any guarding of them, Tom, because they were such a diverse group of people from different sides of the political spectrum that they were spending most of their time backstabbing each other, complaining to the Germans about what the others were up to. They refused to socialise with each other and even refused to eat together. (laughs) It was absolute chaos in this beautiful little castle in the middle of the Alps. (laughs) They despised each other. Herr, Herr Schweinwanker. Is this... Hold on, I'm doing a German accent for a French perfect. Mr Clemenceau said that you look stupid and you had a stupid doo-doo head. (laughs) 
Eddie Nutt. Mr. Schweinwein, I can't do a German name in a French accent. Ah, <laughs> uh, Monsieur Schweinwanker. <laughs> Monsieur Schweinwanker. You will never believe what he has said about me. You must deny him his croissant and frog legs today. <laughs> He is not trying to escape the prison, but he is trying to escape sanity. Have you heard what he has said about the right-wing movement in Paris? And worst of all, oh la la. he uses a toilet roll in a wrong way round. <laughs> he has it so that he pulls it to the back. Very strange behavior. It must be the sign of a spy. And to make matters even more complicated, they were all locked in with their families as well. So oh dear. <laughs> all the bickering wives and kids along with it. So, yes, a sitcom waiting to happen right there. It had a darker side, if you like. It was considered part of the Dachau concentration camp, uh, despite being about 70 miles away from it, and was staffed by a really quite brutal group of SS guards. As opposed to the really nice ones. (laughs) Well, as we'll come on to later, there were actually some nicer ones. (laughs) So Yeah, nicer. 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 I can accept that. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. Very much on the er. It was staffed by SS guards and a group of Eastern European concentration camp inmates who were kept there for menial work. So cooking, cleaning, that kind of stuff. But by the standards of German prison camps, life was pretty good for all involved. The French prisoner cells were luxurious guest suites. They had good food uh, for as long as the food lasted. Obviously, towards the end of the war, it was pretty much a struggle for everyone. And they also had access to the castle library and the castle courtyards and grounds. And even it was relaxed to the extent that their contraband radios, which played BBC news broadcasts, were kind of overlooked by the guards. Sounds bloody lovely, Sam. Sounds like Hogwarts. They they had a pretty good time, it was. It was like a Nazi Hogwarts. (laughs) Dumbledore? Ah, you're an Aryan Harry. (laughs) (laughs) Harry and Potter. Oh dear. Life was even pretty good for the Eastern European concentration camp inmates who were sent out into town on errands quite frequently. They had a little bit more freedom of movement, certainly better life than they would have had in the concentration camps. But because they were allowed to go out into town and and buy supplies and do tasks for the guards, the castle was very heavily infiltrated throughout the war by resistance movements. Outside the castle, however, it was all going to pot. Austria, after the death of Hitler, was an absolute hot mess and a really fascinating period of history and part of World War II in and of itself. The regular German army had completely collapsed, more or less, and was doing what it could to flee to the West, deserting in huge numbers, desperate to find the nearest Americans or Brits to surrender to in order to avoid either being captured by or forced to fight the Soviets. And if they were captured by the Soviets, the ones who'd survived would have faced years in a gulag in Siberia. It would have been it would have been bad times. So they were busy doing anything they could to survive and had broken up into small roving groups. Out of the frying pan into the fire there, isn't it? Yeah, Hitler dies. Fuck Stalin. Oh. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the war didn't end just because Hitler died, definitely. And and meanwhile, on the other hand, the SS, who was still fanatically loyal, were tearing up the place, driving through towns, causing absolute pandemonium and terror, summarily executing anyone they suspected of deserting, which is basically any fighting age male, or indeed executing any civilians who were showing defeatist tendencies. This included shooting up towns for hoisting a white flag in the town church. They were, even by the standards of the SS, or by the standards of the SS, they were being pretty brutal, and life was getting very, very chaotic. It wasn't helped in the castle by a stream of increasingly senior SS officers arriving loaded with loot en route to escape Europe as their empires collapsed around them, which began to put all of the guards of the castle on edge. 
and it was among all this confusion that the battle for Castle Itter came about. So it began on the 3rd of May 1945, when the prison commander sent out his handyman, a guy called Zvonimir Kusevich, on an errand into town. Now, Kusevich was a Dachau concentration camp inmate who'd been sent over to do work. He was also a member of the Croatian resistance and had a letter hidden on his person in English, which he was hoping to show to the nearest Americans asking for help to rescue the inmates at the castle, who were starting to fear that they were going to get executed as the war came to an end. So he had infiltrated, so he was, okay, so he was a double agent, so to speak. Yeah, well, he was, he'd always been a member of the resistance, but he'd managed to get himself into a position of semi-privilege where Influence. he was given this yeah, cushy yeah, job yeah. as an electrician okay. at the castle. So he had in his pocket a letter from the inmates asking for help because they were worried that as it all collapsed around them, they would become of no use and a burden to the SS and, and might well be be shot or, or kind of taken into deeper hiding somewhere and, and held as hostages. He potted off on his bike and headed off towards the nearest town of Rogel, or Wargel, sorry, which was only five miles away, but was still under German control and had large numbers of SS in it. So... Seeing this and being warned by the resistance, he turned around and set out towards Innsbruck, which was 40 miles away. He made it by evening and found some Americans, promptly showing them the letter, requesting their help. Now, they thought, this is a bit too much for us to deal with. We're only a small American patrol. So they bounced it up the command chain. And as with all of these things, it took some time for him to get an answer. And so it was the next morning before he set off back with actually a pretty heavily armoured convoy of tanks and jeeps and trucks and troops to rescue the castle. Unfortunately, they got caught in some shelling, it all descended into confusion, and the Americans turned around. Only two jeeps loaded with non-combat troops managed to make it through. Not very useful. Not very useful at all. Meanwhile, fearing what Kusevich had done and following the death of the head of the Dachau concentration camp himself, who'd shot himself at the castle whilst trying to flee a couple of days earlier, the commandant of Itterschloss and all of his SS death's head guards fled the castle. They ran off. They decided this is too much for us, which allowed the prisoners to escape. Now, the prisoners broke into the armoury, seized the weapons and took control of the castle, fortifying it. <laughs> so you now have a castle that's pretty much staffed solely by French dissidents and tennis players and retired prime ministers holding out, arming the doors and guarding the castle with stolen German machine guns. But they were worried. They thought, well, they knew that the SS at some point would return to finish them off. So they agreed to let another inmate, the prison cook, cycle back into Wargel to try and get in touch with the Austrian resistance. He did, and it turns out that these Germans who'd been guarding the town had actually defected. They'd joined up with the local Austrian resistance and were fortifying it against the SS in order to protect local civilians. So these German soldiers had basically turned coats and said, we're going to stay here until the Americans arrive and we can surrender to them. And in the meantime, we're going to defend the civilian population. So, as I said, it's getting quite complicated outside the prison gates right now. Yes, it is. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm focusing, Sam. I'm focusing hard <laughs> following it. So, in a major twist, the German commander, which is a guy called Major Joseph Gangle, had actually joined the resistance and been made its head. So, in the space of two or three days, <laughs> he'd gone from fighting them to being in charge of them. Major Joseph Gangle's head. Major Joseph Gangle's head. <laughs> of the resistance so the, the cook the chef of the castle managed to find him and said look we need some help Gangle thought right well we can't really abandon sorry the I just find the name Gangle quite I know funny. it's a great name Major Gangle Joseph Gangle <laughs> Guten Tag 
Mein Name ist Major Gangul. I have the longest arms and legs. <laughs> oh, I see. You're going for gangly. I like it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, gangly. Yeah, gangly. I am seven foot tall. I am like a spider made of noodles. I'm imagining like a German Mr. Tickle. Yeah, yeah, you got it. Absolutely. Imagine Mr. Tickle covered in swastikas and you've got Major Joseph Gangle. <laughs> Major Joseph Gangle. So Gangle thought, right, we can't abandon this town because the SS are going to kill all civilians. So we have to try and find some help from the Americans. So Gangle, under a white flag, set out to the next town along, a town called Kufstein, which was eight miles away, and surrendered to the Americans. And when they heard his story, unsurprisingly, they were amazed <laughs> and immediately set out with a rescue mission of two tanks called Besotten Jenny and Bosch Buster with a platoon God of... Goddamn Bosch Buster. Goddamn it, Bosch Buster. Yeah, Bosch send Bosch Buster at him. <laughs> That'll get him. Indeed. And the Americans, again, collected everyone they could to try and help out. So the two American tanks were loaded on the roof with African-American troops, which was very unusual in World War II to have African-American combat troops anyway. Even more unusual to have them fighting alongside white Americans and mingling. Is that right? Yeah, that in itself was very unusual. And so behind this convoy of white and black American troops was the Major in his staff car leading up a single truck of four or five German soldiers. So you had this bizarre convoy of pretty much everyone in every uniform under the sun heading through the Austrian Alps, <laughs> yeah, getting back to this castle, yeah. all under the command of a Captain John Jack Lee. And you also had the slightly bizarre situation of the American captain commanding the German major. So it was, it, and all in all, it was very confusing the last yeah. few days of, of World War Two. You tend to think that it kind of ended fairly neatly with the death of Hitler. It really didn't. No, no, I imagine. I mean, massive power vacuum, isn't it? It's just chaos. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Even among the victorious allies, it was, it was all very confusing. Um, along the way they picked up some more US troops but it, it gets even more complicated and some had to be left behind there was a bridge that was too heavy for them all to cross and they got harassed by the SS and it, bloody fat Americans <laughs> big fat Americans <laughs> but they headed for the castle meanwhile back at the castle who do you think the prisoners had put in charge of them Tom? Brian Blessed nearly as good as Brian Blessed the tennis player the, <laughs> no, although he's key to the story later. It gets more confusing, Tom, because the prisoners had put a wounded SS guard in charge of them. Why? <laughs> because he was one of the nicer ones. He was a guy called Kurt Siegfried Schroeder, and he had come to the castle to recuperate after being wounded and had befriended a lot of the prisoners. And so they decided that since he was pretty much the only one left with practical experience of how the SS fought, he should probably be put in charge. So having escaped the SS, the prisoners now put the SS guy in charge. This is very confusing. <laughs> it's very confusing, isn't it? So the Americans arrived and the prisoners were furious because by the time the Americans arrived, the Great Rescue Party consisted of 16 Americans, 11 Germans, one tank, which they used to block the door of the castle... And that force combined with a tennis player, two prime ministers, two retired generals and the president's sister being led by a badly wounded SS guard. Yeah, exactly. And did they all stand by the gates of the castle with big cigars and go, God damn, we got this covered. Yeah, absolutely. If you can track them down, if you can find them, then you just might be able to hire one defecting German major, three French generals, a tennis superstar, a president's sister. And a partridge, a partridge in a pear tree. tree. 
<laughs> Great. So their fears were realised, and on the f- evening of the 4th of May, the SS returned to start scouting around the castle, launched a couple of little probing attacks, and in the morning turned up in force. And this force of 45-ish prisoners and soldiers from different armies... Hotchpotch. This ragtag group yes. of soldiers came under attack from 200 SS troops with heavy cannons and machine guns for support. You'd think they wouldn't stand a chance, but by all counts, the battle actually went pretty well for the defenders, and they held out for most of the morning. They pretty quickly began to run out of ammunition, though. Gangle managed to phone the Austrian resistance back in the nearby town for reinforcements, which arrived... (laughs) Reached into the room without even leaving his chair and picked up the phone from the other side. Yeah, absolutely. Drew it back through. There's just this giant purple arm extending all the way around the castle. (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Gangle. (laughs) Very, very good for sort of looking over the defences to see what the the, the SS are doing. They also got Mr. Tickle involved. That's why the SS weren't very successful in attacking the castle. (laughs) Mr. Tickle would sneak up behind them and just go... (laughs) And they go... <laughs> no, stop and visit tickling. Hans, Hans. He's a woman. Must not do this. So what was the tennis player doing at this point? He was in his tennis whites, racket in one hand, just pinging bullets back with his exactly. backhand. Exactly. Pow, yeah. pow, pow. Hand grenades, throwing them up and banging them yeah, over. Yeah, absolutely. The, yeah, just volleying grenades at over them. Over the walls. the SS. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Tight yep. white shorts. <laughs> <laughs> so things did start to get a bit desperate. So Gangle phoned town for some more of the Austrian resistance to turn up and reinforce them, which they did in the form of two more German deserters and a teenager. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Who presumably had just been dragged along grumpily and was kicking his heels in the bag. I don't want to be here. This is stupid. stupid oh my Germans. God, do I have Dad. to do this? I don't like it. <laughs> No, you're going to sit here and you're going to fight for your freedom like everyone else. But I don't want to. I don't want my freedom. I just want to play Xbox. <laughs> He's just sat there smoking in the background, drinking cheap cider. Just sat there doing his homework in the background. At which point things did start to get a bit more desperate. Shortly after phoning for help, Gangle took a bullet while shielding former French Prime Minister Reynard. And, uh, and was killed. Oh, he was killed? Yeah. Uh, so he died pretty shortly after making the emergency phone call, and the tank was destroyed by German cannon fire, although no one was hurt, as it had been abandoned by everyone except its probably quite confused and scared radio operator, <laughs> who had a very lucky escape. So the, the cannon shell just went straight through the tank and out the other side, destroying it, but, but the radio operator managed to escape without any injury. Wow. Which, again, is very Hollywood, as is saving a former French Prime Minister by diving in front of a bullet for him. Yeah, 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 yeah. So at this point, by the early afternoon, it was starting to get really quite bad. They were almost entirely out of ammunition, and the SS were approaching fast and were kind of knocking at the gates of the castle. Drastic times call for drastic measures, Tom. What do you think they did? They were all out of handy men on bicycles to send off into town for help, so what did they do? Don't tell me. They got a load of birds, uh, tied <laughs> things around their ankles, and then set a light to them. A nice reference to our last podcast episode, or the second to last podcast episode. Yes, well done. They, <laughs> Put a link to that in the description. No, Tom, they needed an athlete, so they got the tennis player out. Oh, here he comes. Here I comes he be tennis a... superstar Jean Barotra. I imagine him jogging on the spot in his little white shorts. Well, yeah. Ready to go. Pretty much. What do you want me to do? I will do it. <laughs> I can uh, smash the left, I can smash the right, I can smash the SS. So you send me, I would do. What did he do, Tom? He literally vaulted the castle walls. <laughs> and ran across the SS lines, ran through the SS, 
to deliver an urgent message to the American reinforcements further down the valley. I'm imagining uh, one of the SS leaders looking at this going, ah, is this a pole vaulter? And Volta <laughs> saying, no, I think it is French. Hey! <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. No, all the poles cycled into towns running errands and never came back. Excellent. Yeah, he vaulted the side. He jumps over the sides of the castle. So he jumps over the sides of the castle. And if you see the pictures, it's a pretty big castle. Like German Austrian castles, they're pretty big. So he vaults the walls, belts across the lines of attack, dodging machine gun fire, and and runs off to the nearest Americans further down the valley and gets the message through that times are desperate and they need support. At which point, Barotra strips off his tennis whites and puts on a US military uniform <laughs> so that nice. he can join the fight. Another absolute Hollywood heroic <laughs> moment. And so the convoy rode off to relieve the castle. And they arrived around four o'clock in the afternoon, at which point the SS surrendered. The battle was won. The castle containing a load of Frenchmen who absolutely despised each other had won against the full might of the SS in the closing hours of World War II in Europe. Over 100 SS prisoners were taken, meaning that over half of the attacking force had either been killed or fled, which is pretty good going, considering that the only Allied losses were four people wounded and Gangle killed in a pretty heroic Hollywood death as well for the man who abandoned the German army to defend a town of civilians before signing up alongside the French resistance and the Americans to get help and save the castle. I'm getting into this, Sam. I can see how yeah. you can see why this would be a good film. It's going to be it's like an the amazing Expendables. Film. Be, yeah, absolutely. It's halfway between where Eagles Dare or The Great Escape and The Expendables. Absolutely amazing. That's right. I, I want, Sam, for this film, I'm getting into this now, I want there to be lots of steroid-abusing, 60-year-old, slight past-it Hollywood action heroes yeah that's absolutely. what i want playing french ex-politicians yeah. and leaders that's what i want here absolutely Definitely. as the film wears on all of these hollywood actors they slowly get more of their clothes get torn and more muscle gets revealed <laughs> just like in an, a classic arnie film where at the end he's barely wearing any clothes and his pecs are biceps and like, yeah, i am on it's just gonna be arnie playing major joseph gangland as he takes the bullet he's just gonna bounce oh. his pecs as he takes the bullet. he's gonna like be flying yeah. slow-mo through the air just going with his man tits. With <laughs> <laughs> dancing man pecs, yeah. I've always loved you, baby. Yes, I can picture this. No. <laughs> Reynolds is just going to be behind him going, Can we get Gerard Depardieu to play the tennis player? Yes. With his big French nose. His enormous <laughs> big French nose. But yeah, so Gangler is now considered a, a war hero in Austria. There's streets named after him locally and he's considered an absolute an absolute hero. And uh, the French prisoners obviously were all freed. They returned to Paris. The SS were all arrested and, and taken to, to prison camps awaiting trial. And Lee, the American captain, was awarded the Distinguished Service Cross for fighting through the SS lines to get to the castle and, and rescue it. And I am very pleased to announce that after bloody years of thinking this needs to be a film, it is actually being made into a film by Studio Canal, who I think will probably do a pretty good job of it. I like Studio Canal. I do as well, yeah. They make things slightly unique, don't they? Is it going to be slightly tongue-in-cheek, slightly comedy? Because it could I go either way, No, it? it's still in pre-production, so there's not much detail about it yet. But I think it's such a... It, there's, there's so much natural comedy in this story. <laughs> yeah, like the, the pole yeah, vaulting yeah. Frenchman flinging themselves over the wall of the castle. The Germans all not knowing who to fight for and running away. There's there's genuine drama, but there's also genuine genuine comedy in it. All the Frenchmen hated each other. You've got all of the resistance members of the 
of the Eastern European prison inmate population who are running around on their bicycles delivering messages. There's so much to love in this story. So much to love. It is very colourful. Yes, I like it. I want it to be an Ealing comedy, I think. I want it to be that kind of light-hearted, slightly slapstick. Yeah, and Studio Canal do that quite well, don't they? They do, yeah, they do that really well. So, uh, yeah, I got high hopes for that film. Excellent. I did enjoy that. Good. I'm really glad I finally got to speak about it. I've never really thought before about what would have happened when Hitler died and clearly the war was pretty much won by the Allies and you're just thinking, what were people doing? It would have been chaos, wouldn't it? Yeah, well, the war actually, the official ceasefire wasn't until, I think, May the 7th, I want to say. Just a couple of days after this battle, was it all ended. But until then, yeah, it was absolute carnage and absolute chaos. So there we go, Tom, the Battle of Itterschloss, one of the last battles and certainly the strangest battle of the war in Europe. Have you got any ideas, Tom, about what we could talk about next week? I've kind of chosen the last two weeks, haven't I? The topics of the last two weeks. So I think it's your turn. What have you thought? I would like to do, if I may, I'd like to do inventions. Have we done inventions? We did Eureka Moments, didn't we? And I talked about the invention of rubber. But I'd like to do strange inventions through history because the, the Greeks had some mad stuff and yes. and the Romans had some mad stuff and there were lots of ideas which just didn't work over history, you know, in medieval times. So it, it could be an invention in terms of it could be medicine or or new recipes or, or, or <laughs> technological recipes. inventions, anything like that, anything like that. Let's do it. I, I like this. I think we can go, yeah, I, I, I like the sound of this. Inventions, I'm happy to go with that. Marvellous. Well, that pretty much draws us to the end, doesn't it? I hope you have enjoyed this podcast. Dear listeners, if you are new to this podcast, as I know that many of you are, please do subscribe to us on your app of choice. It really helps us grow. And follow us on our social media. There are links in the podcast description. Or you can find us on Facebook, which is at That Was Genius Podcast. You can find us on Instagram at That Was Genius. Or on Twitter, that underscore was underscore genius. They should leave us reviews as well, shouldn't they, Tom? They should definitely leave us reviews, Sam. Definitely leave us reviews. It really helps. And tell your friends. If you enjoy it, tell your friends about us. Yeah. Hold a That Was Genius party and go as your favourite characters. Yes. You could be Sir Flanner Washbottom. You could go as (laughs) Mr Gangle. Santa Anna, the one-legged Mexican (laughs) general. Yes, definitely go as him. You could go as Dick Richards. Lollanaise, French pirate Lollanaise. Yes, yes, yes. Just goes Mr. Bolognese. You could go to all sorts of all people. Sorts. A fantastic party. So many choices. So many choices. Have a fancy dress party. Let us know. On that note, we expect to see your pictures, <laughs> and you can expect to hear us next week on another thrilling instalment of That Was Genius. Bye. Bye. <laughs>